here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Trump makes people feel bad very often. George Bush made people feel bad, but like not on an hourly basis. Not so, in your face every five seconds because no, like, of it social is, media. Yeah. yeah. So there is a sort of like he keeps on doing things and people need help processing it. And comedy is really good at processing things in a way where you leave, if not feeling better, feeling lighter or less burdened by something. And that question of if you should feel less burdened by things is a thing that I think probably was debated also under Trump, right? It's like, well, maybe we should feel bad all the time. And if we feel bad all the time, we'll do something. Uh, that's not proven out, but... Um... <laughs> I'm John Favreau. Welcome to Offline. Hey, everyone. My guest this week is Vulture's Jesse David Fox. So Max is out sick. I'm traveling. We just did our show in D.C., so um, this week, we're just going to do this interview, which was a fantastic interview. Jesse is the senior editor at Vulture. He's the host of the Good One podcast, and he has just written a new book, aptly named Comedy Book, uh, which talks about all the ways that comedy, powered by the internet and mass media, uh, went on to uh, conquer American culture, particularly and now is such a, a, a presence in the life of millennials and Gen Z and sort of central to how they communicate. It is a fantastic book. I really recommend it to everyone. And it's sort of a lighter conversation that I think people could use right about now. We talk about humor's role in building trust in media, why it's so hard to make fun of Donald Trump, and what makes Barack Obama's and Jon Stewart's approach to politics so different. Max and I will hopefully be back next week. I definitely will. Hopefully Max will. In the meantime, feel free to send your questions or episode ideas to offlineatcricket.com. Here's Jesse David Fox. Jesse David Fox, welcome to Offline. Thank you so much for having me. So when I first started thinking about topics for this show, uh, which is about how our extremely online existence explains so much about the world right now, comedy was at the top of the list. And you have written this fantastic book, Thank you. I just finished it last night, and I loved it. Oh, and you. you basically trace the evolution of comedy uh, over the last 30-ish years, uh, which also happens to coincide with the rise of the internet. want to get into all that, but I want to start with your reason for writing this book, which you lay out in the first chapter. No matter how much comedy grows in popularity and societal value, there still exists a strong apprehension about appreciating it on its own terms as an art form. This needs to change. 
Why do you think that apprehension exists and why do you think it needs to change? Sure. Yeah, I think part of it is the the history of how stand up and, and in comedy general has grown. It, it grew up through low culture spaces and it was not necessarily performed in the same place as arts were necessarily performed. And I so th- there is that part of it, which was sort of like comedy in general. When highbrow and lowbrow values were created, comedy was often seen as a lowbrow just as a way of defining what highbrow is. So there was sort of that thing where you sort of, they're not a respectable artist. Mm. And then you had a sort of self-deprecation quality of comedians that I think maybe got it through the maybe the 1980s of why comedians wouldn't, wouldn't take themselves seriously. And then there was a sort of like anti-intellectual masculine feeling about comedy that like, Treating it seriously was, you know, it's like, I'm trying to think of a way that not using their parlance, that would be not appropriate for this podcast. But, you know, like, you know, like, stupid, this is like, nerds shouldn't be doing this. This is for like, tough, grizzled guys like us. You can't take this seriously. It's just jokes. Whatever I say is fine. I have to do a voice. Like, you, it's you, all of it. <laughs> yeah. and, and those people created a value system and dominated the culture so much that comedians... We're just like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it, right? And I think there's also a fear that if you took it seriously, that it wouldn't be funny anymore. And I didn't believe it, right? I think there's two things, which is like, one, I grew up, I'm a millennial, and as I write about the book, millennials are sort of a generation that grew up where comedy was around much more. Mm. And we didn't know comedy was not something you took seriously. I was... I'm trying to think of how old I was on The Daily Show. So I was like 15 or so when John Sewer took over The Daily Show. And I was like, this guy's providing me information that I would not get otherwise. I'm not going to watch the news. I'm 15. Yeah. Even though John Stewart was like, we don't provide anyone the news. I was like, yes, you, at least me. So yeah. A lot of and, other people too. Yeah, a lot of other people. And then like, as you know, I have statistics in the book, he's quite good at it. And uh, in, just in terms of how well people retain information. So then, and then John ascended and you're like, Seemingly, comedians are serious. And then it just kept on happening where they were taken more and more seriously. And yet people still were like, can we take them? Can we take the art form seriously? It's like, we are doing it already. We just need to create a vocabulary of how to do it. So that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. And I think it's really valuable. You said a few different theories about why we laugh and enjoy comedy before landing on the one you find most persuasive, uh, which is known as play theory. Can you talk about what that is and and why you think it offers sort of the best explanation? Yeah, you know, I, it, it it starts because I, I try to disprove the idea of uh, you can't cut up the frog, which is a E.B. White and Catherine White idea. And, and I start by saying, like, their idea of what humor was or what comedy was when they wrote that in the 1940s ultimately is not the same thing we think of when we think of as comedy. Like comedy, modern comedy is a much more recent tradition. And... So as a result, I looked at the joke theories that were available then, and there's um, incongruity, uh, superiority, and a third one I can't remember. But they're all binary. They're all like, a thing was like this, then a disruption of some sort, and then you laugh because of that. And then you're either laughing or you're not. And if you go to a comedy show, you know the experience of a rolling laughter, right? And you know the experience of people laughing, not just at the end of a sentence where the punchline is. And play theory, it grows out of sort of theory of evolution, right? Darwin was essentially like a proto-play theorist. And 
basically it's the idea that like comedy, the art form of comedy is not about before and after. It's about the state. You are in a state of receiving comedy and jokes are just the way to be in that state. They are not the reason you laugh. You laugh because you're in that state. It's the same reason why you laugh with your friends so loosely. You'll mm. laugh at loved ones just being themselves. It's because th- because the trust and the comfort you have with them is what facilitates laughter. Comedians are just professionals at creating that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it read to me, and especially as I went through the book, like play theory and the reason we laugh and the reason we enjoy comedy is born out of the just longing for human connection. Yeah. Yeah. And it's born out of the longing for primate connection, right? It's not like we're the only animal that laughs. Many animals laugh. Previously, people didn't think that was the case, but most primates laugh. Rats laugh. It's possible that dogs and cats laugh. Now, they don't make the ha-ha-ha sounds. They don't have the vocal cords for it. But they 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 experience that. It's the same thing if you like watch how a baby laughs, right? The reason uh, primates laugh is uh, what they call rough and tumble play, which essentially they play at dangerous situations, but because it's not actually dangerous, they laugh. And that ability to sort of play with sort of complicated ideas and dangerous ideas is ultimately why we have comedy as well, is why we laugh as well. You uh, you cite this uh, 2012 survey that showed millennials view humor as the number one factor in their uh, self-definition and point out that if you look at social media behavior, comedy is now pretty central to how millennials and Gen Z communicate in a way that just wasn't true with previous generations. Why do you think that happened? I think it is comedy is very useful at speaking in short clips, right? Like essentially not not literally like clips, like literally like Twitter was a limited amount of characters and comedy, the sort of glibness that hypothetically can be in comedy is good for speaking shortly. And then same thing with memes. They sort of communicate a lot of information in a very limited amount of space. And then that is mixed with people who are funny are succeeding. So that becomes the like, oh, I got to be like that. Right. So it's like Elon Musk is probably the most extreme example. Right. He sees people being funny, doing well on Twitter. And he tries and being funny, he's not funny enough to succeed in the same way. So he had to buy Twitter to essentially rebuild it. So what he thinks is funny is how Twitter values people. Now all the comedians are gone. So he has no one to compete against. So it really is like comedians didn't know this. They just, you know, they just realize it's just the byproduct of things comedians were good at anyway. And like what social media um, values or what succeeds at social media. I hadn't thought about that with Elon, but I guess you could say, you know, he bought the platform possibly to spread around his uh, terrible political views that no one really asked for, but also because he like wanted people to laugh at him. He just, he wanted like a big platform for his dumb jokes that he was in in memes that he was stealing from other people. (laughs) Yeah. There was, I can't remember. There's a while where he's like trying to compete with the onion. Like I do think there are a type of person that finds comedy like mystifying in a sort of weird way where they also think that they're smart enough that they're like, I could figure it out. Like when you look at other joke theories that are much more binary, like it fits in that. It's like, ah, jokes and jokes are like this. So if I do this, I will be perfectly funny. And like, ultimately, (laughs) there's nothing he can do that do that because what actually creates humor is the ability to create spaces where people want to laugh at you and not laugh with you, not laugh at you. And I don't think he has that relationship with people in that way where 
actually, if like people liked him more, then like his dumb memes would be like, yeah, that's my dumb friend Elon. But instead, it's like this villainous, like Bond villain Elon, who also is like shooting off jokes while he's like completely trying to control the universe. I mean, one thing that's happened with sort of, uh, you know, the rise of social media is that we we don't have this monoculture anymore where 76 million of us are watching the Seinfeld finale, like you pointed out in the book. And that means, you know, we're not all talking about it, connecting over it, sharing the comedic experience together. On the other hand, you know, you point out that now comedians don't need their own television show. They can be successful with big social media followings, podcasts. How do you think that shift has changed comedy as an art form? Yeah, I mean, it's extremely radical. I mean... And both good and bad, right? There is a thing of a lot of the things that are holding back comedy was that people would go out on a Friday or Saturday night and go see comedy in a way that you would not do that. You wouldn't be like, I'm going to the theater. Like, what's the play? You thought it. I'm just going to theater. I want to see a play and I'm just going to go. Or music. You wouldn't just go to a concert and then be mad when they're like playing rock music and you're like, well, I like jazz. Why aren't they playing jazz? But people have been doing that to comedy shows for the last 50 years. And what the internet did was allow people to find comedy they liked. And as a result, allow comedians to play to people that actually like what they're doing. And then it could be more truer artists, whatever. The, the sort of downside of that is then people who are now playing to an audience who gets what they're doing, their comedy is then being spread out without any context to people who have no idea what the hell they're talking about. And who can't even perceive what they're doing as comedy at all. Like you'll see on Twitter or what was once called Twitter, like, a clip of a comedian doing the thing, and then people are like, this is not funny, people like this, or whatever. It's like, well, clearly, thousands Some of people, people like it. But the thing that you are not a part of is the main thing that comedian is doing, is creating the sort of context in which what they're doing is funny. And so much of what is great about what has happened in comedy is because of the internet. But I, I, it's hard because so much of what the internet is or has become is so antithetical to how comedians have to operate that it yeah. is... is I, I, I in the book I try not to say it's I try not to be doom and gloom about it, but I it is scary to be like. Anytime I see a clip, even a comedian I don't like out of context, I'm like, it's not only that you're being unfair to this comedian, but the receiver is not even under is so un so confused why they're talking this way. Well, on the other side of it, I have been wondering whether it's still even possible to have sort of a monocultural comedy experience. And it was interesting, you talk about Saturday Night Live. It's yeah. sort of, you know, the only thing that's left that is live every week and that is meant for as general an audience as possible. And then you think about, like, the various complaints people always tend to have about SNL and have had more of, I think, over the yeah. last several years. And I wonder if those complaints are just unsolvable because it is a live show every week that is targeted towards the broadest possible audience yeah it's, it's also built in right the thing about snl is and i think i i had a breakthrough with the show when i realized the show's not meant to be good in in the same way as we think of good like when you think of a yeah. good sketch show if you like keen peel or whatever and then you watch snl it's like why don't they just make a show as good as keen peel there's so many people that work there and by design and, and this is from talking to people that work there. The goal is that no one should like an entire show. That the go they try to hire people with different sensibilities. So if you like a sketch at the top of the show, you might not like a sketch at the end of the show. And I realized that early on because I was making a list for Vulture for the best SNL sketches. 
and I had a top 10 list and a coworker was like, oh, I want to participate and had a completely different top 10 list. <laughs> so no matter what, this is why people always complain about SNL. It's like when you were a kid, you didn't pay attention to what you didn't like. And then you grow up. You're like, why are there, there these bad sketches? Like, well, there's always been bad sketches. Like, watch the first season. There's tons of bad sketches. The sketches were so long. And anyway, that's, 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 that's an unrelated thing. But so, like, SNL becomes more frustrating because, like, why is it so annoying? And then I think, especially when you apply politics to it, because it has a sort of median quality that is so off-putting to a lot of people, especially people who grew up not experiencing that type of feeling anywhere else, right? If you grow up on the internet and comedy has always been catered to your interests, when you see something that hmm, is yeah. catered to no specific interest, it is grotesque in a way. And like, I do think people hated Alec Baldwin's Trump impression online. Yeah. Hated it. And they're like, it's the worst thing in the world. It's an embarrassment. And yet it is so popular. Like, it is so popular. People loved it. I knew people that loved it. And it is, you know, I, I write about how subjective comedy is. It is. And I go, it's so subjective that it feels objective. It's so, you can't even comprehend that someone, it's like food almost, I guess. Like you eat food that's gross. You're like, there's no way anyone could like it. And that has now been intensified by the internet because you're never even shown things that are not what you like. You know, like a lot of comedy programs like like this, the Simpsons I read a lot about Simpsons, and the Simpsons yeah. themselves also were like, we want to have so many different types of comedy, so people with different sensibilities will still like it. That type of thing is even the people that I know at the Simpsons say we can't do that anymore because if you just liked when they were um, doing like cute family stuff, we well, can watch Bob's Burgers, and if you just like when they're doing political stuff, you can watch South Park. We have created specializations in sort of all these categories that SNL, which is like so broad, feels for it. It feels like, and but people like it. Like, and people want, like, it's like, wait, it's a nice way to see what's up. Like, see where America's yeah. at. And I, and I do think that we have, whether it's with comedy or anything else, we have sort of lost something essential with the death of the monoculture. Yeah. And I know people have talked a lot about that uh, and written way too much about that. But at a time where everything feels sort of fractured in society anyway, you do sort of miss, and at least I do, yearn for those moments where uh, you can go into work the next day or talk to a bunch of friends and like everyone says, oh, we all watched that. We all love that. That was yeah. great. And not having that is sort of tough. Yeah, I mean, that is the sort of fundamental problem with the life on the internet that if you go down that rabbit hole it's it's hard because i i i'm nervous that if i embrace that perspective then i will sound old right so <laughs> same i do this all the time <laughs> but it did feel like things were better when people were just sort of talking like had things they agreed to talk about and even though they didn't love it the same way they were able to like oh i like this i like that and there is something lost to i work for Vulture, which is a site with probably, I have more, my coworkers watch more television than anyone else's coworkers, I think, probably on Earth. And we can't even have the same things that we talk about because there's so much different things. And like, that's how you relate to each other. Just the talking through something. It's like, this is not the same thing as play theory, but like play therapy with little kids, like play with little toys. And I always think like, I'm a type of person who like my play therapy would be like talking about something that I watched on The Simpsons or what I watched on any sitcom. So you lose that. You lose these ways in which you connect with each other. Mm. And 
you know, the sort of bigger implications is the connecting with each other. Part of it is like actually something comedy can foster that is much more useful than like what I think the media tends to focus on the value of comedy in sort of political or social causes. And their algorithmic quality to how people consume content has made it so the opposite, right? I, you know, people will criticize political comedy all, all on the left. Different people on different parts of the left will just criticize different political comedy. And they um, will think it is a political judgment they're making on these shows when it's actually a taste judgment. Like it is the, sort of the opposite of what people think, which is that people force their politics onto their taste. Well, actually sort of their taste is being forced upon their politics where they're like, I don't like, this is not funny to me. This is probably a Republican show, right? Like, and you're right. like, no, they're actually, everyone agrees with each other. It is just a type of humor they're trying to do. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. I mean, I, I am unsurprisingly most interested in your, your chapter about comedy and politics, um, not only because I, I was involved in Obama's roast of Trump at yeah. the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which you write about, but because using humor to get people interested in politics is a big reason we started Crooked Media, why we did Pod Save America. We have always had a hunch that humor and inspiration are better ways to motivate left-leaning audiences than the fear and anger you often get from right-wing media. But you actually cite this political science professor who argues that the simultaneous rise of political satire on the left and outrage programming on the right wasn't a coincidence. Why is that? Yeah, so the thing that she writes about is essentially, before we were born, people trusted the news. Isn't that unbelievable? They yeah, just wild. did. 72% <laughs> of Americans trusted the news. And now the number, I think, in 2016 was something like 30%. And that is not by accident. I think there is a, a tendency to be like, you know, don't don't ask why comedians had this platform. I think I quote Winnie Cummings saying, it's like, why don't the news? And it's like, well, in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan did a variety of things to specifically make it so people trusted news organizations less. You know, he there's just straight up deregulation and the fairness doctrine that made it so people out here both sides, equal parties, both sides allowed for deregulation of like monopolies and stuff, stuff in media that allowed it so people could um, create conglomerates that made it so what we think of why we think the news is bad, that all was because of what happened here. And so then you have profit driven news organizations that people don't trust. And then you have newspapers closing all the things that are, I think, bad. Like, I don't go like it's great that comedians are are trusted news sources. I, I, th I think it's good when if it was the news, but for some reason, it is, it is not. So as a result, people were looking for people to trust. That's like, that is it. People just were searching for trusted news sources. And that's something I experienced. Like, by the age in which I could have read the newspapers, like around the Iraq war, because I was also watching The Daily Show, I thought the Iraq war was probably like a bad thing to do. 
I knew the Daily Show. I knew the news. The New York Times was complicit in the march to the war. So I delegitimized the New York Times. I kind of wish I didn't in my own mind, but like, so that is part of what it is, right? So it's like people are looking for a way to trust. Now I do think in that book that she writes, there is probably reasons why people trust angry people were versus why they trust funny people. But I think ultimately, as we've seen more recently on the right, they also like to trust funny people. Like I do think there is a sort of trust built into sort of how jokes work that makes it so comedians are good at being trusted. And there are studies that how funny you think a person is, is also is correlated with how much you trust them, right? So, and trust is really the thing people need most to be a news source, not information. Like that came second. Like now all yeah. these people have fact checkers, but they did not at first. They first were just being trusted and were entertaining. And, the, and I think one of the reasons they become trusted and especially with John Stewart as an example is as you point out, comedy is sort of creating this atmosphere of trust yeah. where you're making people feel comfortable and you're, you're, you're having the, the goes back to the play theory. Uh, and I, I wonder if that is why people end up trusting the person who's making them laugh because they just feel more comfortable and feel like they know that person better. A hundred percent. I mean, if it, it is sort of, it's deep in your brains, which is we, we feel comfortable with our family and your friends so we trust them. And as a result, we're more comfortable laughing, right? We feel safer to laugh at dangerous, broadly defined ideas. Then you have a comedian who's really good at being funny. And for some reason, our deep subconscious, this person is funny to us. And then we reverse engineer it, right? We're like, well, they have the qualities I associate with the people I trust most. So we're like, why? Then they're, they're, they're my friends. They're my family. Like so much of comedy fandom is like really being, especially now because of the internet, is like that is my friend. They don't know me, but like our relationship is friends, especially if the podcast It's like you, you, I talked, I hear by my friends as in strangers talk more than I talk to my friends. So I think that is part of it, right? It's like, yeah. And then John especially proved quite good at it. Like the, as, as things became much more complicated, he, he was able to continuously find ways to talk about it. And the ability to talk about things that are hard to talk about is probably most comedians strong suit. And then you just keep on trusting them more. And then so by the time he left, you know, like, I, I think it was undervalued how many people trusted his opinion. Yeah. I mean, you cover the debate over whether The Daily Show caused its audience to become more cynical about politics, which is a debate I have both participated in and constantly wrestle with in my current job. Yeah. Um, and I, I do worry that if trusted sources of news even if they are comedy-based, yeah. if they spend too much time mocking the spectacle that politics has definitely become, it will. It, it sort of leads to the uh, LOL nothing matters response uh, on, that you see on social media a lot, especially among young people. Yeah. But I don't know. Like, do you, do you think that shouldn't necessarily be the concern of someone like Jon Stewart? Yeah, I mean, right. So as I write about, you know, in the Daily Show book, one of your former colleagues, I can't remember who said the Daily Show, there was a worry in the Obama administration that the Daily Show is making people cynical. And then the Daily Show response is, you can't be cynical enough about politics. Which is just a line that I hated. <laughs> sure, sure. And I also think you can be cynical enough, right? I do think you there's an amount of cynicism that is useful, but there's probably a, a line to it. And I also think 
the cynicism of a professional comedian is different than sort of the cynicism of a non-professional person trying to be funny on Twitter, right? Like, I do think yeah. a lot of what I talk about in this book is that, like, comedians are actually, like, very good at the nuances of these things. And I think Jon Stewart, for how cynical he was maybe about, about politics, he also was extremely idealistic. Like, when people make fun of Jon Stewart, often from the left now, they're like, oh, he just loves America or whatever. <laughs> and, it, and it's like... You know, that is different than sort of what he taught people how to do, right? I think he he focused so much on hypocrisy that he gave people the vocabulary to just sort of find hypocrisy all over the place. And hypocrisy is extremely easy to find. And I think when you then speed things up, as the internet does, you get less time for the part that is not that and just becomes the pointing fingers at and the cynical part of it. That said, I think comedians always are going to wrestle with how their work is received. It is is what the hardest parts of it, right? I think John was doing a 30-minute program. John Oliver is doing a 30-minute program. You know, Seth Meyers is doing an hour-long program with a lot of different things going on. That's all they can control what they create. And it's hard to know what to do with the people who then sort of like clip it down and focus on certain parts of it or just hear the cynical parts of it. And, and I think... There is a this sort of bad news bias I think people say about the news. I'm not saying comedy is immune to that, right? I think it's sort of people hear that and then it sort of sensitizes and it's easier to make jokes about how things are bad than to make jokes about how things are okay. That is very true. Yeah, so that, I think all that, right? And I think there's a sort of glibness to that. Now, I don't know what they can do. Like, I do think they all try to showcase positive things, just not in their opening monologues, right? I think they will interview a politician who they agree with and allow them or an activist. Right. You yeah. Know, like I feel like John Stewart had like Malala on or what, I don't remember when Malala was at her peak, but like, I feel like John would have Malala on a lot. And I think that is a hard thing when you sort of like just focus on one parts of what they're doing. And I do think Twitter then incentivized non-comedians to make jokes that were cynical because that yeah. caused more anger. And then that's how Twitter worked more so than like, I mean, jokes about how like Joe Biden is crushing, right? Like there, there is there is a space for it, but it's much more limited if yeah. you're trying to like break out of your bubble. So it is, I don't know, like it's hard. Well, it's also, you know, cynicism has this sort of countercultural, anti-institutional flavor to it that is uh, popular among yeah. people who can like just put themselves at a distance from the serious stuff that's going on. But you're right that like they don't, at least comedians like John Stewart, don't intend to be doing that or don't think they're doing that. I remember when he came in to talk to Obama and they had this discussion about the about the show being cynical and that. And the way that, well, about at least the way that Obama related was that Stewart said, it's sort of like when uh, you're telling a friend that they have some, something stuck in their teeth. Like you, you, you like them, you're with them, but you know what? You got something stuck in your teeth and I got to tell you, I just got to, I got to point it out. So that's at least where he's coming from, yeah, which yeah, I yeah. thought was interesting. Well, it's also like I compare it to dating, right? There's so many jokes about dating. Mm. If you go to see comedy right now, most people are talking about dating and all the jokes about how dating is hard and how I, it used to be just, you know, men joking about how women are bad and women joking how men are bad. And now that more comedians come from all different parts of the spectrum. It is just people joking about all types being bad. Now, do you go like comedians have made people too cynical about dating? It's like, well, people, no, you wouldn't say that because there are other jokes about dating or people have other ways, places they get it. 
it is that cynicism in politics is reinforced by certain behavior and also by what information sort of gets out there. But it, it is a point I understand because for a person who notices the trends, I think as we've part of both do, you can see how it can keep on getting worse. Yeah. And when you think about that, then you're like, oh, when everything is shorter, when there isn't time, then there's just the person who's doing sort of like, my, my Twitter account is just to make jokes, being cynical about the late night talk shows, right? That exists, right? So when they become more prominent, whatever, what happens after that? Yes, I understand. But I don't want to forgive comedians for everything they do. That's not the point of the book. And especially as there are other comedians that I, I hold accountable for it. But it's somewhat blaming comedians for how people use their work yeah. more so than the work that they're doing. And I think that is a lot of when people complain or debate about comedy under Trump or whatever, it is they are blaming them for how the media has received them. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Let's talk about Trump because, you know, very easy to joke about, difficult to joke about well. <laughs> he seems impervious to mockery, but most people don't view him as a serious person. Um, and yet, like, eight years after he first announced for president, um, people are still consuming tons of comedic content about Donald Trump, uh, which I can confirm from firsthand experience. Uh, why, why do you think that is? Well... It's why do people go to comedy, right? It's it's because they want to laugh. And why do they want to laugh? It's because they feel bad about something. Like It's like it's actually yeah. quite simple. So Trump makes people feel bad very often. George Bush made people feel bad, but like not on an hourly basis. Not so, in your face every five seconds because so, like, of it social is just, media. Yeah. yeah. So there is a sort of like really um, basic like... Um, quality of just sort of like input in input out which is sort of like he keeps on doing things and people need help processing it and com and comedy is really good at processing things in a way where you leave if not feeling better feeling lighter or less burdened by something and that that question of if you should feel less burdened by things is a thing that i think probably was debated also under trump right it's like well maybe we should feel bad all the time and if we feel bad all the time we'll do something and like uh, that's not proven out, but um, <laughs> but so I think it's so. And he's a ridiculous character, right? He's a TV character. It's if Homer Simpson was running for president, and like we would we would clip that because he is a character created by TV to be entertaining and to be funny to watch. So it makes sense that like just comedy that is repeating it would also still be funny if you can kind of like lessen the stakes enough that you can laugh at it. And so then everyone, it's just like the thing everyone was dealing with. It is the stress everyone was dealing with. So then they all found their ways to sue themselves for it. Now he's 
complicated as a sort of target for comedy. Right. But it doesn't mean that sort of comedy failed because during that time, because it seemed like everyone found their comedy about it. I know there's a debate over like whether comedy and making fun of Trump is somehow valuable from a political perspective. And I've gone back and forth on this, but I've come around to the view that Trevor Noah tells you about in in the book where he says, you know, there's a lot of a lot of countries and authoritarian countries leaders don't want to be mocked and they make it so that they can't be mocked because they know that that's potentially dangerous to their rule. And, you know, look, there's two ways to go after Trump. There is he is extreme and scary and fascist and he's taken taken over the country and all that. And I think that is, you know, it's important to call that out when it happens. But I also think there's he's just a fucking buffoon and not a serious person. And is this really who you want running the country? And I tend to think that as you go broader than just liberal partisans, Mm. uh, it is more damaging to him. And he thinks it's more damaging to him to be a joke. Yeah. I mean, and we talked about cynicism, right? Like, I do think there's an extreme value to not believe things are hopeless, right? The reason these these leaders in other countries, you know, as I write in the book, at the same time, Trump was trying to arrest Jimmy Kimmel and trying to arrest Saturday Night Live. Other fascists were arresting comedians in India, in Russia, in Iran. And it is because once you take them less seriously, it's hard for them to act inevitable, hard for them to seem so powerful to sort of their followers. And that is a hit. It is not the same hit that I think people hoped from comedians in terms of the ability to bring them down. Right. But, (laughs) But the ability to make people still believe it's possible to resist is super helpful. It is super helpful for organizing. It's super helpful to like live a life. And and that is a tool that comedians do worldwide. And it's why that they, they're stopped doing it. I think it, it's so interesting because a lot of the critiques of political comedy have been these comedians fashion themselves as like the people that can bring down despots and then fascists or whatever and it's like no they did it the media <laughs> media said they're that and then complained when they didn't do it i was like well why did you create this idea that they can do such a thing and i understand it's like a nice story it'd be great if it'd be great if comedians some reason had this magical power but they have their their use is as i write about in the book is their their use in changing people's minds and and affecting outgroups is less useful or less powerful than their value to the in group. How do they motivate people? How do they give people hope? You know, the example I use is the Stephen Colbert at the White House Correspondents Dinner with Bush. That was it is the political comedy piece of my lifetime. But it's not like Bush was like, I guess I got to quit. No, but it made it it made it so people at home were like, oh, it's we're not alone. There is hope to resist this. Yeah. No, and I think I think one of the reasons the media does that is because of what we talked about before, which is this in a trust vacuum where people have lost faith in institutions and they want someone to do something and we live in a celebrity-driven culture, yeah. right? All those things combined, it's like, well, the comedians will save us. But I do think that sort of giving people that hope is probably the the um, uh, what you can what you can bet on more. You have a chapter about when comedy crosses the line where you note the growing list of comedians who've said some version of, uh, you know, political correctness is killing comedy. 
I thought you made an interesting argument that throughout history, there have always been attempts to push back against certain comedic portrayals of marginalized groups, and people have always been free to say offensive shit. What's different today is the internet. Yeah. Um, can you talk about how you think the internet has changed the debates around free speech and uh, political correctness? All right. It's a big question. <laughs> it's, it's by far the longest. It's like, it's, 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 so it's just a big question. Let me think of where to start. So it's interesting. It's an interesting time to have a question, a debate around free speech when we have created platforms where people can speak more freely than they've ever been able to, right? It's like a funny time to be like, I can't say anything anymore when there are platforms where people are just saying hateful hate speech on it. And especially now, as those things are, um, there are fewer moderators on those platforms. So you sort of then, like anything, you create certain tribes of this debate. And as as the sort of right has used this debate as a way to try to um, attract seemingly left-leaning young men to their cause, they've intensified this. But the basic idea is comedians were very used to a sort of one-way communication, which is sort of they say something and the audience laughs or doesn't. And they like that and allowed them to live a life where everything they were doing was liked by everybody. As you know, even comedians will say that now. Like uh, Jerry Seinfeld would say, like, the old, comedy doesn't need criticism because the critic is the audience, right? Mm. But what they did it couldn't hear was the person not laughing. When people are laughing, it's really hard to hear a person not laughing. And those people had effects. I talk about a show that I went to where I saw a comedian um, who at the time did material that you, you would not believe in terms of the words she used. This comedian, Lisa Lampanella, she has since does not do comedy anymore. Hmm. And I don't know if I even liked it, but it didn't go like, well, this isn't allowed or this is hurting my friends who she says these words at. And now people can say, hey, I don't like that. Now, they're not saying that on a larger platform than the person who's saying the things they don't like. But comedians are very sensitive people. And anyone saying they don't like something breaks their heart in a way that is almost hard to process. And it goes both ways, right? So it's like, it has made it so both, there's now people who are able to voice their complaints about something as well as people who like it so much, who go to comedy for this reason. I think these people are silly, but, and that they then support it, right? You have the, Chappelle has a certain sort of army that will defend his right to say anything. And it, it becomes this right to say anything, not the fact that like no one is taking away the right to say anything. Also, no one's stopping him from being paid to do it. It is just the same thing, which is the freedom to just say like, this is maybe not good art which is a scary thing to say and also be like, you heard my feelings and I'm a person as well. And that, and, and just having that all out there is different where before it just sort of a comedian was out of town by the time you wanted to complain at them. And I, I, and part of the chapter, the goal of that chapter was like, let's try to sort out both for people who, who hate this, who hate that comedians are doing this. Let me try to explain why they do it, what they think they're doing. And then maybe for people who, who, want comedians to do it let me try to explain why one it does hurt people's feelings and two it maybe is like not that interesting of work well i thought it was interesting that you basically come to the conclusion that it not only is political correctness not a problem for comedy but it's actually 
has the potential to make comedy better. Yeah. Even if it makes comedy harder. Yeah. Also, like, because the, the, the entire argument is so silly, right? It's like the idea of killing comedy, truly, comedy has never been more popular than this time when more people than ever have been saying it's killing comedy. You know, I talk about Anthony Jeselnik, and Anthony Jeselnik is a very edgy comedian, and he is the one who says, like, taking away political correctness from comedy is like taking the football away from football, right? And it's just basically being like, the thing you are pushing against to make the tension, to make people laugh, is the fact that it might be offensive. If you take out the fact that it could be offensive, then all you are doing is just saying slurs to people who want to hear slurs. And, and I don't think these comedians want to do that, but they can't process the need for the audience to sort of have a feeling that is maybe not exactly what they're doing. And, and I think not only is it necessary, it's like ultimately it's not going away. Like we, we say political correctness as a sort of grab bag, but ultimately, as I describe it as this sort of line, and ultimately it's like where the taste is and where people are comfortable with you going. And the truth is like, it is really dependent on the night and the comedian and the people's relationship to that comedian. Like, I don't say it's not funny because like clearly Dave Chappelle is the most famous comedian though it's almost ever has been right now. So these people are laughing, but I am saying there is one, it is maybe not as challenging as he thinks it is if the audience is on board with everything. And two, in a few years, it will seem he will maybe regret that he did it. Like this stuff ages terribly. Like, I, I, you know, I, I bring up Eddie Murphy because Eddie Murphy yeah. always gets brought up with this. And in the 1980s, he, he started both of his specials just like railing against gay people in a way that's sort of so weird, in a way that is so like there's something in his mind that he had to do this. And then later now, anytime you talk about Eddie Murphy's stand up, you go like, yeah, some of the material doesn't hold up. And he has to apologize for it every single time he is interviewed about maybe doing comedy again. He is like, you know, I, you know, I feel bad. I really regret I hurt people's feelings. I want people to watch it in the context of the time. And the context of the time is people didn't like it. Some people liked it, but some people don't. And that's the same thing as always. Like, I, I, I say in the book, um, a lot of people who are um, oppose these types of jokes underrate how many people do like these jokes of and including people who these jokes might be about. I think there there are a lot of people who for whatever reason, are able to enter a space where they can laugh at whatever. They believe comedy is a space where you can laugh at whatever. But I also think comedians underrate how many people always didn't like it. Yeah. Well, and just like everything else that we've talked about, like you you, you were just talking about this in the context of a comedian yeah. in front of an audience in a physical space. Yes. And when you cut down sort of either the most offensive or the most over the line bits and they're shared around the internet and then everyone's yelling and it's a bit, it's not just sort of a bigger drama than you might think, but that comes to the comedian as well. So I'm sure the comedian sees the, the craziness online and is like, oh God, everyone's out to get me. It's a mob and blah, blah, blah. When in reality, it's like, first of all, it was, you know, it might just be one joke that they didn't like out of a whole set, but also, um, just some people didn't like it and other people did. And that's it. No one's coming for you. It's just that <laughs> other people, some people liked it and some people didn't. And like, other than if you're trying to make television on uh, networks that have commercials, you're probably fine. Like that is really <laughs> it. If you're on a streamer where they don't have commercials, they don't have advertisers and advertisers are much more sensitive about these things. You're going to get paid a lot of money to do these things. You, you'll have a large audience. You might regret it someday. But right now, 
just count your money and be happy. Like, I do think the they because these comedians live in the context of their own lives. Right. So they know they don't hate this. Right. And I think they know what they're trying to intend. They're like, I'm just trying to say, lighten up. I always say, like, in Dave Chappelle's mind, he's helping. And they can't comprehend that other people do not hear their jokes the same way they do. It is it's not so dissimilar to, like, people think so many songs are love songs, even if they're not about that at all, because they hear the word love once, and they're like, hey, it's probably... People are not so great at consuming work. Their brains process it through their own filters. Yeah. And why I, why I spent so much time on Dave Chappelle is Dave Chappelle used to be the example of a comedian who realized that his work might not be received how it intended. And now he decided he's now the example of a comedian who does not care if his work is received how it's intended. I mean, can you talk about why what you call uh, the bad little boy comedians uh, yeah. have been successful? <laughs> not unlike a Trump thing, but it's, it is adjacent, which is I always imagine a person, mostly usually a man, but who goes to work and kind of wants to talk at work how he does with his buddies. And 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 that doesn't mean like he he's full of hate. He just likes the freedom to like, as I described, like a lot of it is just the freedom to call things gay and not bad way to be like that, like that chair's gay, whatever. There's just some there's because as I compare it to, it's like when you're in a foreign country where everyone's speaking, let's say, Spanish and you don't speak Spanish and you hear someone speak English, you feel a little bit like you're at home. And I do think. People speaking like you do or want to is really comforting, right? It goes back to the family stuff. And I think a lot of people, I I sort of go into a more extreme version of this in a later chapter with the bad little boy, right? As I call it, these comedians who are not even right wing, but have been embraced by sort of right wing ideology. And there's Joe Rogan's, you're Joe Rogan. Yeah, yeah. Even you like Chapo Trap House, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's, like it spans the spectrum too. There are just. The you know like Chapo, which is the dirtbag left, which is sort of a mirror image of these, what I call the bad little boy right, is that like, they're as one of the hosts explained, like there are these men who are just sort of lost. Culture used to be only for them, right? When we were younger, the like yeah. the Man Show was on TV, and like where there's like Maxim Magazine and FH, and it's just sort of like you can be a dude here, and and that and and because men had so much purchasing power male culture dominated in a way that it just does not today. And those men miss that. And then they find people that speak how they speak. And they're like, I guess those are my politics too. Right? They don't even know how they feel about trans people, maybe because they never met a person. And they don't have the nuances of Dave Chappelle's jokes about trans people. So they're like, well, that's a funny joke. I can say that. And they're like, and then the danger is you're taking people who have no real strong opinion, who don't have a particularly sophisticated um, comedy literacy. You're giving them a joke that could hurt people. And by the way, they trust you yeah, and you're using and that. You. And so I think, I mean, this has been sort of a thread throughout the conversation, but like with the trust that you give a comedian, the comedian then does have some, ob- I think, has some obligation to not use misuse that trust in a way that could be potentially harmful. I it's like I am not one to say should or should not. But like clearly these comedians do think that, right? Yeah. Clearly Dave Chappelle thinks he should be trusted and that he's an important person. So 
it's not wrong to be like, well, if you are believe you should be trusted and you're an important person, if you're going to release a special like 846 about George Floyd's murder, that is essentially completely serious. You believe you take yourself seriously. And that's great. I take comedy seriously. But don't get mad when people then take it seriously that the like you taught a lot of these people to do this. But more than anything else, I want to make it clear that it makes his comedy worse. He's a very talented comedian that has now become a shock comedian. And I do think it is it is a cheap thrill. And I do think there is a lot of people. It's like any sort of taste in any sort of art. There's a lot of people who just like want something easy, right? There's like, I want something shocking. I don't want to have to pay attention too much. He says these words. I'm not allowed to say that's great. Then 20,000 of us can go together and I can feel like it's okay for me to say these words. Yeah. My, my experience with that was like, I saw all of the, uh, all of the outrage about, uh, the Dave Chappelle trans joke first. And then I was like, all right, I got to watch this myself, you know, and like prepared to be, outraged my and then i watched it and i was like you know what it's just that that part wasn't funny yeah <laughs> like it wasn't like yes it's offensive but whatever people can judge that for themselves but i'm like i think it is just from a pure comedy perspective it seemed like he was a little too angry and not funny yeah it's also like it's there's such a defensiveness and i don't know why people like defensiveness i think um and that's a tr- trump thing too right like i, I guess when you're being defensive people that like you feel like you're defending them. So, right, that creates a certain sort of bond. But as I explained, like, I hope most people consume art or comedy because they care what the artist or comedian thinks and or cares about. They definitely don't. It's not as interesting to see not only what they don't care about, but also basically talk about just the thing that they're talking about because someone says they shouldn't talk about it. Like, now it's like, well, you don't even have an interest in this. Your only interest is in your ability to do this. And it becomes so self-serving and so defensive that it becomes, you remove the person from it and it just becomes a position. And yeah, I think you're correct. Like that last Chappelle special, it it has almost that quality of um, certain Republican politicians who are so online that you have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, Like if you haven't been following this debate around Dave Chappelle, you're like, why is he like, what is ha- what? <laughs> What's what happened? Yeah, it becomes an it becomes an obsession. Of, yeah, and know, I and, and, yeah, and he used to be one of my favorite comedians, and I think he's an extremely talented guy. And in a room, he can get the audience to do whatever he wants. But I think he's so good at that that he has no he's it's so hard for him to understand how it plays to people outside that room. Yeah. So uh, towards the beginning of the book, you write about comedians figuring out when and how to be funny after 9-11. And I made a note then to ask you about the pandemic before seeing that you wrote the last chapter about the pandemic. In some ways, I think we are still very much in the middle of grappling with the trauma of the last few years, loss of life, but also the loss of time and connection with one another. What role do you think comedy has in in getting us through that? Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's immense. And it's sort of different than 9-11 because 9-11 happened and then is over right so then mm-hmm. it was like remember 9-11 or like 9-11 was not about gathering in public spaces generally right there was i'm sure some people might be afraid to be in new york but they weren't like it's i can't be in a bar i can only be in my home where the pandemic was like gathering is dangerous laughing out loud is bad you open in your mouth like all these yeah. things just the gathering of people is valuable 
Um, and the ability to, when you gather people, make them relax about their tensions about the fact that they're gathering people, right? Like, and I, and I, it's still a process. Like, as I write about in the book, audiences are still f- trying to remember what it's like to be an audience, what it's like to merge with strangers and watch things together, not just next to each other. It is a, to me, a spiritual practice, and it is so woo-woo that I, I am embarrassed talking about it. And all artists are doing a version of this. But I do think comedy is unique in its ability to create a certain sort of aloofness, as I, I quote Victor Frankl saying, you know, and that aloofness allows things to just be lighter. Of the many things about the pandemic, it's just sort of it felt so everywhere that it felt it, the existence felt really, really heavy. And it was hard to go forward because of just sort of the weight you're carrying around. And loss of life is you know, like grief is a sort of weight that you carry. And it is so hard to relieve it. And comedians, and I think better at anything else they do, is lightening your load and just and just giving you some light that you're like, and once you have that, that's a step forward. You know, I write about how that ha- affected me personally. And and I still have it now. Like I, I still, when tragedies happen, I think comedians realize actually that is the time they're most valuable to talk about yeah um and you know it is the most recent example is pete davidson when he hosted snl and he, he started and you're like what oh no what's pete gonna say and then you remember sort of the defining narrative of pete's ascent was that his dad died in 9 11 right and he talked about how comedy helped him and i think there are certain people who and i'm one of those people with those brains that just like remembering what laughter feels like i say in the book like there's been a number of studies that prove that comedy is not the best medicine. You know, like they're just, it does not really help you get over a cold or anything like that. But it depends on what you're sick with. And if your sickness is malaise, if your sickness is some version of like PTSD or some version of just sort of like not knowing how to go forward, then comedy is really good. If you can't figure out how to laugh, comedians are really useful at making you laugh. Jesse David Fox, thank you so much for for joining Offline. And where can people uh, pre-order the book? Where books are sold? Uh, where do people buy books these days? Everywhere <laughs> where there are books, you can buy that book. Um, it's called or, Comedy Book. Or if you're in New York on November 7th, I'm doing a book release at the Bell House. will be me talking about the book, but then also a very good comedy show. And then November 13th at Dynasty Typewriter in LA, I'm doing a comedy show that also will be very good. Well, we also be selling the books and they'll be signed and yada yada that'll be great do go to that that's most important yeah those shows to be sold out we know dynasty typewriter well here um thank you again for joining uh fantastic book appreciate you uh appreciate the time thank you so much uh it means so much that you took it so seriously offline is a crooked media production It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau, along with Max Fisher. It's produced by Austin Fisher. Emma Illick-Frank is our associate producer. Andrew Chadwick is our sound editor. Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Fotopoulos provide audio support to the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Michael Martinez, Ari Schwartz, Madeline Herringer, Reed Charlin, and Andy Taft for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Delon Villanueva, who film and share our episodes as videos every week.